All right. Um, first, thanks to the worship team for giving their time and bringing us worship. Good stuff. Tonight, we are wrapping up the missional discourse. We're wrapping up our second discourse from the book of Matthew. Um, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of going through this summer. We're going through the five big sermons that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew. Um, which, incidentally, I've been kind of digging into these a little more. Um, most scholars believe that Matthew kind of did that intentionally, that of all the things Jesus taught, he grabbed five of these um, because he, he wrote to a very Jewish context. He wrote um, to a Jewish audience, and that would have uh, mirrored the, the Torah, the five books of the law. And so I think maybe that Matthew was kind of intentionally grabbing these five teachings of Jesus and, and putting them in there, which is uh, kind of neat, totally for free. It doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about tonight. Just thought it was kind of cool. Um, but tonight uh, we're wrapping up. We've been in the missional discourse where Jesus sends out his, uh, his disciples to go out um, and minister in his name. Um, we started, uh, we talked about how in the Sermon on the Mount, we were kind of in selfie mode, right? The camera was pointing at us and we were looking into our own hearts. We spent a lot of time really kind of almost x-ray mode. We were under the water looking at the base of the, of the, uh, of the uh, iceberg. Remember that uh, we have a tendency to focus on the little part that sticks above water, but the gospel likes to go under and work on the stuff that's underneath, that stuff that that people can't really pick on because you can't see it. It's that motive stuff. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say don't even get angry without cause. Like the gospel likes to get in and work on that deep inner stuff. So we spent like eight weeks in there on the inside, and then we turned the camera around. We were front-facing camera now. We're looking out. We're talking about going out into the world on mission and doing God's work, advancing God's kingdom. Um, and this is kind of, uh, you know, kind of an, an interesting dynamic to Christianity that um, we have a tendency to get so caught up in the, in the salvation part, in the salvific part of Christianity, that we kind of forget there's a whole nother, there's a whole life to live. Like if it was all about salvation and being with God, we would just hold you under a little longer during baptism, right? Just if it's all about being with God, let's just get there, right? Just, uh, but there's a, there's a whole thing. And, and I, was, I was reading this week and, and I kind of saw this picture about uh, um, when Adam, it was in the garden, when Adam was, uh, was with God. It was just Adam and God. There's no sin. Everything's perfect. He's in a perfect garden, perfect God. No problems with man. And God looks down and says, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. He saw that alone was a not good thing. It's not good for man to be alone. So he said, I'm going to make Eve and give him a helpmate, right? That's the way we generally tell the story. Except that's not what happened. If you go back and read what happened is he said, Adam... Go name all the animals. And we say that, we kind of skip over that part. Do you have any clue how long that would have taken? <laughs> to name all the animals. Like this is a long waiting period where all Adam could do was the job God gave him to do. And after, and so he just, so he lives in this not good state for quite some time before God finally makes it good. And brings Eve. And I feel like, in a sense, that's what mission is. We, we awaken to the not good state of the world. We look at how broken it is. We look at how bad this world needs Jesus, how much this world needs the kingdom of God. And then we're stuck working in this not good state, awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ to fix everything and make everything right. And so this, this state is that in-between. This is the... The already but not yet. We're already in God's kingdom. We're part of God's kingdom. We're advancing God's kingdom. And man, we can't wait for God's kingdom. Kind of all at the same time. We live in that tension. 
And we call that mission, being on, in the mission of God, the missio dei, it's been called um, for centuries. So Jesus sends out his disciples. We talked about this kind of like, and, and, he, and it's awesome at first. It starts out good. He's like, I'm going to give you power. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to heal people. You're going to free the captive. You're going to do all these amazing things, except you're also going to get arrested. You're going to get beaten. You're going to get, uh, your own family's going to turn against you. You're going to, uh, all this, you know, they're going to, they called me, the devil, what do you think they're going to call you? Like, and so he kind of starts out awesome and then he gives them this kind of emergency alert, like, like one of the thunderstorm warnings that pop up. Like, oh yeah, just so you know, it's also not going to be super easy. And we talked through that and then we talked about how, buddy, he kind of assures them in the midst of that, that it's all going to have purpose. If you get arrested, that's going to have a purpose. You're going to go preach the gospel wherever you got arrested. If you run and get away, you're going to preach the gospel wherever you run and get away. You're just going to, that whatever happens when you're on mission with God ultimately serves the mission of God. And, it, and he says, everything you do is going to have purpose when you're on mission with me, which is a huge comfort. So we ended kind of talking about how Jesus, um, you know, he's pretty real with them about what this is going to look like, and yet they still signed up. And it says something about how compelling Jesus must have been, that, they, that, that he could tell them, here's what it's going to look like when you go out. You're going to get beat on. You're going to get, you know, arrested. You're going to get treated terribly. And they were like, if that's what it takes to be with you, I'm in. That tells you something of the value they saw in Jesus, something about you know, that they would hear this kind of warning and still be excited to go. It tells you just how amazing Jesus must have been. Um, so last week we changed and we talked about perspective. We talked about how when we're on mission with God, really when we're living life in general, it can be scary and, and it can be, um, it can get pretty frightening as we face life. And that uh, Jesus kind of confronts that fear um, by telling us, you know, that, that there's really nothing to be afraid of. We shouldn't fear those. All they can do is kill you. All they can do is beat you up. All they can do is hurt the body. You know, and, and, but fear becomes, it becomes one of Satan's primary keys because if Jesus assures us that everything that happens on mission with God can serve the purpose of God, then there's really nothing to be afraid of. It all serves the purpose of God. The only thing, there is, the only thing that can really stop us and really mess up the mission of God is fear. And Satan uses that. It's one of his primary weapons. You know, he can, if, if he can get us afraid enough, he'll keep, we'll stay quiet. We won't talk about Jesus. We won't talk about our faith because we're, we don't want people to, to not like us, you know, so we, so we kind of bow to that fear. We start chastening functional saviors. You know, we start these things that, man, if I don't get this, I just won't make it. You know, if we don't get this thing to happen, I, the whole world will fall apart. Or, you know, man, the, the church is in big trouble if this thing over here doesn't happen. We start chasing these functional saviors, these things that we think will save us when Jesus makes it clear that he's the only thing that can save us. That's fear that makes us do that. Fear can keep us from enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ. You know, we, we spend all of our time so afraid we're going to mess up, so afraid that we're going we're to blow it in some little area that we never get to actually enjoy the freedom and joy of walking with Jesus. Satan will use fear to do that. He'll use it to keep us from being authentic, keep us from being real with each other. Like if they if they know who I am, they won't like me, or they'll and and fear comes in and and chases away our authenticity. He can use it to lock us in our tribalism, where we fear people who look different than us, or sound different than us, or worship different than us, or vote different than us. Like and so we we stay locked in this kind of tribalism mentality because we're afraid to go outside of that. So Satan can use fear, and Jesus doesn't. Doesn't just say, don't fear, don't fear anything, don't be afraid. He says, 
Why would you fear that? Fear God. If you're going to fear, fear God. Be afraid of not doing the mission of God. Be afraid of not fulfilling God's purpose in your life. If you want to fear something, that's what you fear. You don't fear all this other stuff. None of that can really hurt you. So this week we're going to wrap up this discourse. That's why we're, we're titled, How Do We Respond to This To? So this is our second discourse, um, and we're wrapping it up. These are Jesus' kind of concluding remarks here. Um, and this is the, the one where Jesus is going to turn the tables, finally, in this little pericope we go through here, um, because he's been pretty tough. This has not been, you know, uh, pie in the sky, how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise kind of sermon. He's kind of given it to him straight through this whole thing, and it's, it's a little tough sometimes to preach through this stuff because you know, nobody wants to stand up and tell everybody, oh, by the way, walking with Jesus can be really, really hard. Like, that's a really, really tough sell. But, um, but we've been trying to be kind of honest with the Scripture. And he, and he starts out in that same general theme. He says, do not think... Oh, too far. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set, to set man against his father and, and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy will be those of his own household. By the way, this is a direct quote from Micah 7, 6. Um, Jesus goes back and quotes scripture where Micah says, Micah's giving kind of a, a prophetic look at, uh, at the, the new covenant of what it's going to be like when God shows up. And so Jesus quotes that directly, almost like he's saying, by the way, this is that. Just so in case those of you who know your scripture, this thing that's happening here is that. So he's kind of doing this on purpose. He quotes this scripture on purpose. Jesus knew where this scripture came from. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this seems to be Jesus's kind of conclusion to all of this, these warnings he's been giving them, his conclusion to all of this, this picture he's been painting. And I think, I wonder sometimes if this didn't come in response to facial expressions. Like he kind of lays out, by the way, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And then he looks out at him and he sees him and he's like, oh, what? You, oh, you thought we were going to, oh, no, no, that's not what we're doing. I'm sorry. No, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Like, I almost wonder if this little conclusion wasn't kind of in response to how they were taking the dire warnings he was kind of dumping on. I'm like, oh, no, no, did you think I was coming to bring peace? No, 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 that's not how it works. And so I think this is a verse personally that we mess up all the time. I think this is one we get absolutely wrong. And I think the disciples did too. And I think that bears out in the narrative of Jesus's life of the, of the gospels. But we tend to, we tend to take this and we let this, this passage make us aggressive and combative. Like Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. I'm going to get out there and, you know, blah. Like, and, and when someone resists our faith, we, we fight them on it and we argue on it. You know, God didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. Rah. And so we get all aggressive with this passage, right? We, we get super, you know, we use this to say, no, 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 I'm, I'm allowed to be a jerk because he came to bring a sword. Like, and so we, we use this, and, and I've, I've heard this quoted a lot that way, except... We also know that he came and told us to love. And we know that he came and, and told us to accept across barriers, even Samaritans, even women, even Samaritan women were supposed to, to be in contact. Even, even Roman centurions who come and need a healing, you know, even, even leprous people who, who everybody else has deemed unclean. Um, I, you know, Jesus says, no, I, I touched them, which is, there's one of my 
favorite pictures from the Old Testament. This is having nothing to do with my sermon again. Just popping my head, so I'm going to share it. Is in the Old Testament, the whole bent of the, of the law is that the unclean makes the clean unclean. Right? And so if there's an unclean thing and you touch it, you are now unclean. The unclean thing always makes the clean thing unclean. And Jesus goes up to a leper, touches him, and for the first time, the clean thing makes the unclean thing clean. Isn't that amazing? I just love, like nobody, like we just think it's cool that Jesus touched a leper. Oh my God, he wasn't afraid of catching leprosy, blah, blah, blah. No, he was reversing a Levitical pattern and saying now the clean thing makes the unclean thing clean. I just got goosebumps. I'm so excited. Anyway, um, again, nothing to do with my message. We're never going to get done. If I don't do that. The food's going to be cold. Man, can you, anyway, um, so we know he told us to, he told us to do these things. Like he told us, to be loved. He told us to wash feet for crying out loud. He said, if your master washes feet, you should do the same thing. So what about this sword? None of this stuff sounds like sword play, right? This seems like the opposite of a sword. And this is the worst part of this whole thing is just because we don't get a sword doesn't mean there's not a sword. This is where it gets scary. See, and this is, this is touchy. Because if, if we're advancing a kingdom, which we've been talking this whole time, he sends them out on this discourse. He says, go out and here's what you're going to say. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're advancing the kingdom of heaven. We've been talking about this over and over again, that this is a subversive move. And we talked in the Sermon on the Mount how he's kind of flipping the kingdoms. He's saying that the, the poor in heart are blessed and the, the merciful are blessed and the meek are blessed. And those who really want to see justice and fairness and equality, those are the ones that are going to see, see good things. Like, and, and, and he's flipping the kingdom from what we know to be earth. Now, and then when John comes, John sends one of his disciples to Jesus and he says, hey, um, are, you the Christ, are you the one or do we keep looking? And Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer. He says, go tell him that the, that the captives are being freed and the blind are receiving sight. The deaf hear and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's your answer. The kingdom's flipping. And if the kingdom is flipping, that means the kingdom of God is coming. Okay? Now, if we have a present kingdom, and Jesus is coming to advance this flipped kingdom, this different kingdom, this just and righteous kingdom, it only stands to reason that those who are doing really good in the present kingdom may not be super inviting to the new kingdom. Right? Those who are, who are currently benefiting from this kingdom might resist this new kingdom. And this leads to a lot of confusion. There's a theology we call the, the uh, God's preferential treatment for the poor. It's a, it's a theology and a lot of liberal theologians really grab onto this. And they say that if you read the bulk of scripture, God always seems to grab onto the poor. He always seems to be taking care of the poor. He always seems to be, you know, bent toward the poor. And so they've, they've created this theology that we call the preferential, God's preferential uh, treatment of the poor. And then, you know, those who are, uh, who focus real heavily on salvation, where, where their, their theology is very, very salvific. It's, it's all about getting saved. They was like, well, no, God has no preferences. The Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need salvation. There are righteous, poor, and unrighteous rich. There are unrighteous, poor, and righteous rich. There, are, there is no favoritism. And that's, that's absolutely right. In a, in a salvific sense, in, in terms of God's salvation and God's grace and his favor. But when we're talking about advancing a kingdom, when we're talking about advancing this flipped kingdom, it's definitely the poor who stand to gain more in this new kingdom. Those who are currently doing just fine in the present kingdom 
don't stand to do quite as well as those who are marginalized and, and set aside in, in the present kingdom. And so it's not necessarily that God is, has a, a favoritism toward the poor as much as, as God's righteousness and his equality is definitely going to bring up those who are currently marginalized and currently can't get a break because of they're currently poor. And so, um, and so what Jesus is basically explaining and in this thing is, hey, you're moving a kingdom and there are those who are currently doing just fine in the present kingdom and they're not going to like what you're bringing. They're not going to like you flipping the kingdom. They're not going to like you treating the poor with equality. They're not going to like you. And, and we, we found it in the book of Acts. The second, one of the very first things the new church does is they start feeding the poor. They start donating their stuff. Here, I've got this. I sold some land. Here's some money. And they're, they're feeding widows. They're taking care of things. And the temple got upset about it. The temple is mad that they're taking care of the poor. And, and, and you almost have to say, why would that bother you? Who could be upset about that? And it's because their power structure was built on, we're up here, you're down here, and that's how, that's how the power works. And when you start taking care of these people, and they don't need us anymore, they don't have to come to us anymore because they now are sharing things evenly, it's a real threat. It's a real threat to, the, um, to those who are currently doing well in the kingdom. So Jesus is laying that out. And he says, uh, this kingdom functions differently. So we don't get to go aggressively and combatively into this kingdom and kick down doors and you're going to believe in Jesus. and blah. Like that's not what it's saying. He's saying when you go out and love, when you go out and really love, when you go out and take care of people, when you reach across racial barriers, when you reach across socioeconomic barriers, when you reach across political ideologies and just love people, trust me, there'll be a sword. It'll, it'll happen. It'll, the, the world will fight that. The world will fight that very, very hard. They don't want people doing that. This, the system of this world relies on us not loving each other. It relies on division. And when, so you start to break that down, you start to really show love. Yeah, the world's going to fight. The world's going to fight back. And so he says, uh, Jesus, Jesus then turns it and says, you know, and, and this really messes with allegiances. When you love like this, this really messes with your with your enemies and allies. And in this context, he said he, he turns it to fathers and mothers. And like I say, he's he's quoting something from Micah. But this is also a culture where family is everything. Like in the Middle East, it's a very family centered culture. And so for him to say, you know, that that even the family can break apart over this thing, he's kind of picking the the single tightest unit in that culture and saying even that can break down. But um, Bonhoeffer, one of the things I love, Bonhoeffer was a, a pacifist and he was a little bit of a confused pacifist because he volunteered to carry a bomb in a briefcase into a meeting with Hitler because Hitler wanted to meet with him and he was like, man, if you can put a bomb in that briefcase, I'll blow me up, I'll blow us all up and I'll get Hitler out of here. So he's like a sort of a pacifist, but, um, but he, he was a pacifist because he, he recognized that the way he put it, he was a German, so kind of his, his sworn enemy was the, the British and he goes, Technically, I have more in common with a Christian Brit than I do an unbelieving German. Like my true allegiance is to a believing Englishman more than it is to an unbelieving German. How do I go into a battlefield with a gun and have no idea if the person I'm shooting is saved or unsaved? Because if they're saved, we're closer allies than this war can define. And And it really messed with him. And he was like, you know, you're, he was like this, 
this, and this is kind of what Jesus is talking about. This, this new kingdom creates funny allies and funny enemies. He's like, even your own family might turn against you and you might find yourselves buddies with somebody you would have never dreamed of. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the kingdom of God does. And this is what makes politics so dangerous. I know you guys are hoping I wouldn't take it, you know, to politics, but this is what makes politics dangerous. If, 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 if the enemy can convince us, now please don't boo me off the stage, if the enemy can convince us that America is the kingdom of God and that it doesn't need to be overtaken with the kingdom of God, then we'll stop fighting. And we win. Like, that's one of the biggest threats. If he can convince us that, that America is the kingdom of God and everything outside America isn't, then we've lost it. Could we stop advancing the kingdom and, and, and believing that, that the kingdom of God will eventually overthrow the kingdoms of this world, which includes America? If a political party can convince us that they are the Christian party, then we stop trying to overthrow that party with the kingdom of God and, and we just rest and we just sit and we quit advancing. Got real quiet all of a sudden. If we allow, so absolutely, we allow the scripture to inform our vote. We allow the scripture to, to inform and, and, and shape our politics. Definitely. I mean, we live in a country where we're allowed to vote. We allow the, the scripture and our faith to inform that. But the second we believe that that is the kingdom of God, we've lost something huge. In fact, if you want to feel the sword, if you want to feel how fast this division Jesus is talking about can come on, surround yourself with people. That, that agree with you politically, like that you normally have political talks that all go one direction, you know how everybody, everybody uh, and just throw in a bomb of something opposite of the, of the party line. So just wrap your, just get in a huddle of Republicans and go, I think we should have open borders. And just watch how fast the, the, watch how fast the sword comes out. Like we feel like we have allegiances, we feel like we have, but the second you go, you know, the Bible says we're supposed to be friendly to the, to the foreigners in our land because we were once foreigners in a, in a land. So maybe, maybe we should have open borders and just, just watch. You'll suddenly stop getting invites to parties. You'll suddenly start, you know, nobody, you know, you'll walk in the room and everything will get real quiet all of a sudden and you start to realize, man, I've got, you know, my allegiances are different than I, than I thought they were. You know, go into, go into a, go into a, uh, you know, a, a liberal conversation and say, you know, I'm, I think Trump's doing all right. <laughs> the sword will be blinding. Like it'll be headless before you even know it. We think we, we think we know where the allegiance lines run. Just stand up for Jesus in a way that's contrary to the allegiances you think you have and the sword will come out immediately. We got, as, <laughs> Esther's family doesn't argue about anything. They don't really talk about it. They only talk about things that they know everybody agrees with. They do not like conflict. And so every now and then I love to just sit there and throw a bomb in there. Just, and the room just goes dead silent. Like nobody knows how to talk about this thing. And people will go. And just walk out of the room like, I got too much. I don't know. Like we didn't even argue. It just, I just love throwing it in there and just seeing what people will say. <laughs> anyway. Um, so Jesus sums up all this, this, uh, this statement uh, with this that we discuss often. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So they get a sword and we get a cross. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Because we've got to remember this passage, this I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword, doesn't come 
all by itself. It comes in, it comes in the context of a full sermon, right? And what did he say at the beginning of the sermon? I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. Therefore, be harmless as doves. Wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. I can see Russ squirming over. He's not liking the direction I'm going right now. But <laughs> so we get a cross. They get a sword. That's the way the gospel works. We go out and love. We go out and serve. We go out and cross barriers. And people will not like us because of it. They'll fight us because of it. And we, but we just keep on loving. And we, we take up our cross. And we just keep on serving for others. We keep on washing feet. And we keep on crossing lines. And we keep on saying, I know nobody loves that person, but I love that person. I know nobody touches those kind of people, but I touch those kind of people. I know nobody fellowships with those guys, but I fellowship with those guys. And we keep doing that. And yeah, there'll be persecution because of it. You'll lose friends. You'll lose, you might lose family members. But you'll find Jesus, which he talks about here. So Jesus is not sending us out to be aggressive and combative. He sends us out to love and be subversive with that love. And he uses this statement here to give us the transition into the good part of the sermon. He kind of finishes good. It's kind of like one of those Psalms of David that starts out with like, oh God, everything hurts and I'm dying and, and my life is terrible. Where are you? I can't find you. And then there's that but, that but I know you will be good in Zion and blah, blah. Like we're, there's always that turning point in the Psalm where David, you know, find, that's what Jesus kind of does here. Everything's been like, it's going to be rough. You're going to get beat up. People are going to hate you. Your own family's going to turn against you. Blah, blah, blah. But this is the but. He says, he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus has given them power. He's told them where to go. He's told them how to go. Told them with whom to go. He told them what to expect when they get there and how to respond to that. We fear God, not man. And finally, he gets to the why. This is the why we go. Why we go on mission with God. Because we can say, God, I hate conflict. God, I hate it when people don't like me. I'm doing good just to get through the day. Why do I want to take on more? Why do I want to challenge the current system? I'm, I'm lucky just to be able to get myself out of bed. Why do I want to engage the mission of God if it's going to lead to all this? And this is it. This is his point. Because if you chase your own life, you get smoke. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it's vanity, vanity, and chasing after the wind. You, you, you have more chance catching the wind than you will finding happiness if you chase happiness. If you chase your own... The, the World Health Organization, I think it's, this is a two-year-old study now, but did a study of all the countries of the world. Is supposedly hundreds of thousands of people surveyed, and they looked into using all psychological and sociological scales, and America rated the loneliest people on the planet. The loneliest country on the planet. And, and when you think about some of the, some of the like, South American countries, they're, like, they're very family-oriented, like everything is done in communities. But America, you know, we, we now have it set up where you have a garage door opener, so you can push the button, not even have to say hello to a neighbor. You can just drive from inside your house to your job, and come back and have the garage door open and back in your house and have the door down before you had to say so much as hello to somebody. Like, we don't... And the World Health Organization said that we, we rate, and, and pretty significantly from what I understand, 
And we have more than anybody else. We have, we have more. And, and chasing more, all we've found is less. We're lonelier. We're more separated. We're more isolated. We're more fearful. We're more afraid of the other. We're more afraid of everything. Because we've been chasing our lives. We've been chasing happiness. We've been chasing our own fulfillment. We've been chasing getting everything we want. And Jesus said, when you do that, you lose it. You lose everything. You catch smoke. But, he says, when you give up your life, when you sell out for me. Has anybody ever experienced this? Has anybody ever been in that one of those moments where you're just like locked in, whether it's at church or just with some other Christians, and you're just absolutely on fire, and your whole life feels like it makes sense, just feels completely fulfilled, and you're thrilled to be there? Like, it's an amazing feeling. It is the most incredible feeling of fulfillment. And then you got those moments where you're just chasing, you're working every day, and really you might even be doing better than you've ever done before. And you're just like, God, I'm so tired of just the, the same old rat run, the same old routine, the same old go to work, come home, pay bills. Blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I've got some toys, I've got some stuff. I barely have time to enjoy any of it because I've got to keep, keep it all floating. But, you know, and that's the, that's the trap. He says, man, when you'll give it away, when you'll just throw yourself into the kingdom of God and just sell out to do good for somebody else, suddenly... You find your life. Is mission hard? Yes, absolutely. Will it create some natural enemies you'd rather not have? Yes, absolutely. Can it cost you everything? Yes, absolutely. Mission can cost you everything. But you will have lived. You will have lived. So in case this phrase, he who loses his life for my sake will find it, Jesus elaborates a little bit. He goes a little deeper. He says, he who receives me, or he who receives you receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's Reward. This is kind of very, very Jesus because what he does, he takes a very typical rabbinical saying. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet uh, will receive a prophet's reward was, was, is in the Talmud. It's a rabbinical saying that they said all the time. And he says, he who receives a rice man in the name of a rice man will receive a rice man's reward. This comes from the, the original rabbis who put it in the Talmud, brought it from, you may remember the Shulamite? We don't talk about the Shulamite much. She was this lady in the Old Testament where the prophet um, Elisha kept coming to town and, and she would take care of him and, and he would leave because he traveled whenever he'd come back through. And so she, she's a wealthy woman. She goes to her husband and says, hey, the man of God comes regularly. Let's build a house in the attic for him to stay in. And so they finish off the attic and they give him a place to stay. And he comes back through town and she shows him the house and says, hey, you know, uh, uh, we've made this room for you. And... Uh, and Elisha's a little bit shocked and he goes, you did this for me. What, what can I do for you? And she goes, I'm good. Honestly, her answer was like, no, I'm, I'm, I live with my people. What else could I ask for? Like, I'm, I'm good. And somebody else uh, is actually Elisha's servant said, she's been praying for a son and still doesn't have one. And, and Elisha goes, this time next year you'll have a son. And she says, don't tell me that. She actually said that. She goes, do not say that to me. Uh, I, I, I think there's some heartbreak in that. Like, I think there was some hoping and, and she had put that to, to rest. And so um, she goes, don't say that to me. 
And he goes, this time next year. And so that time next year, she had a son and, uh, and, and God had blessed her with this child. And so the, the rabbis in analyzing this story came to the conclusion that the, the, the weight of the blessing she got was because of the weight of the man she blessed. And so they came up with this saying, he who blesses a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And they took it, they took it also from Elijah, the, the widow who had a, a little bit of oil. And he was like, hey, what are you doing? She's like, I'm going to go home. I'll make a couple biscuits. Me and my son are going to eat and then we're going to die because we're out of food. And he goes, well, I love this. This isn't very politically correct, but he goes, woman. <laughs> great way to start a sentence. Woman, go make me some food. <laughs> it's a great pickup line, by the way, if you need one. Woman, go make me some food. And, uh, and so she did, went back, and she took the last of her oil to make, uh, to make some bread for the man of God. And then she brought him his bread, went back, and there was oil in the jar again. And she made food for her and her son and went back, and there was oil in the jar again. And so he said, go to everybody you know, get every empty container you can find, round up all your friends. And she went and got all these jars, brought them back, and just kept filling them with the oil from this original jar and started selling oil. She became an oil salesman and, uh, and lived on the, on the proceeds. Um, so, the, so the rabbis took these stories and they said, obviously when you bless a prophet, you get something amazing that happens to you. And so they, they came up with this saying, he who does a good deed to a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And this is the way religion always works. Religion says that it, it comes down to levels. Like to get a good reward, you've got to be a good person. You've got to bless a good person. You've got to be a top-tier person to get a top-tier blessing. That's how religion always works. And Jesus trumps this. And watch what he does here. So he says, he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So he's going, when they bless you, they're getting blessed on this top tier. Because when they receive you, they receive me. When they receive me, they receive God. So there is no... A prophet's here, a regular person is here, and, a, and if you bless a beggar, it's down here. He's like, when you bless a, a beggar in the name of a, of a disciple, you're blessing Jesus himself. And when you bless Jesus himself, you're blessing God himself. So he's like, there are no tears the way Jesus says it. You do something good for anybody in the name of Jesus. And it's like you're doing it for the master of the universe himself. You're doing it for God himself. He who receives you receives me. There, is, there are no tears. There are no, he who receives you receives a disciple. He who receives Jesus receives Jesus. And he who receives God, no, no, no. When he receives you, he's receiving God. Like, and he's blessed like he did a good deed for God. Like he did something personal for God. So Jesus flips this on his head. When you bless, and then he, then he takes it to the extreme on the next verse. He says, and whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. So he completely turns the culture and and the belief on its head again. He says, when you bless a kid, it's like you're blessing a disciple, which is like you're blessing Jesus, which is like you're blessing God. And this is in a culture where they didn't even count kids where kids like were really low in fact another thing just jumped in my head I love this the, the, the miracle we talk about all the time the feeding of the, the 5,000 
and 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 they said there was five thousand. If you if you read close, it said, and there was five thousand men. Five thousand men, because you don't count women and children in that culture. They don't even count. So we say there probably it could have been ten, twelve thousand people there, but in that culture, only men warrant accounting, and so they bless. So they count men. There are 5,000 men. That's the only thing worthy of counting. Who provided for the miracle that day? Anybody remember? A little boy that didn't even make the count. A guy that wasn't even worthy of being counted, of making it into the head count that day. A little kid said, I've got a couple fish sandwiches. And Jesus feeds everybody with what somebody who didn't even warrant a count had to provide. That was free. Anyway, Jesus says, when you bless a kid, when you bless the, 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 the lowest in the tier, it's like you're blessing God himself. You just gave God a cold glass of water. And, and you get blessed like you gave God a cold glass of water. Jesus, obviously, in Matthew 28, we know this pretty well. He, he elaborates on this. When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And, and that's basically what he's saying here. When you do something good for a, for a disciple, you do something good for God. So Jesus breaks it all the way down. And the thing I love most about this is Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount talking about casting out demons. He's talking about healing the sick, raising the dead, all this big stuff that most of us shut down when we hear that. We're like, that's too big for me. Like, I can't even dream of that kind of world. That's, that's out of my range. And so I love that by the end, Jesus has broken it down to, no, yeah, maybe not everybody can go out in the mission field. Maybe not everybody's going to have enough money to give a ton of money to the church someday. Maybe not everybody's going to be able to study theology and go to seminary. Maybe not everybody's going to be able to, to do this or do that or, or whatever, but everybody can give a glass of water. He breaks it all the way down to say, mission, the missio dei, being on mission with God, comes down to, given a glass of water. Yes, it includes the power. Yes, it includes raising the dead. It includes the big stuff. And I believe we're supposed to see that stuff happen in the church. But I also believe we're supposed to be the ones giving the glass of water. And that that is part of the mission of God. Every little thing we do. Every kind word we share every grace we extend, every time you sit down and read a Bible story to your kids so that they'll know the Scripture. It's part of the mission of God. And we're blessed like we did those things for God Himself, for the Maker of the universe. Jesus says in the sermon that one day all things will be uncovered. And we talked about this, that all these little things, every glass of water that was given to every kid will be seen. It will all be uncovered. We'll finally know what it was like. Amy posted this on her page this week and I want to throw it in here because I, I felt like it fit. Mother Teresa said the same thing this way. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of being selfish and having ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people will cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. If you spend years building something, someone could come and destroy it overnight. Build anyway. If you find sincerity and happiness, 
there will be people that are jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. But give the world the best you have anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it was never between you and them. It was between you and your God. She was amazing. So, if you were following along with your Bible, which I know you weren't because I didn't put it up here, I left out one verse because I wanted to get to the glass of water before we talked about this one because this one's scary. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is one of those verses that preaches... Preachers love to use to encourage and show love to other people. No, not really. We like to beat people up with this one. We like to, uh, we like to hang this out there like a threat. And it is a scary verse. But I look at it just a little different. Because what I see here, we, we tend to think like, we tend to think of it kind of linear, like we get a chance first and then... And if we don't do our thing, he's going to go up and rat us out, right? That's kind of the way we think. I, I think of it as, as almost flipped, like part of, of the salvation part, part of the heavenly part is this other part. In other words, I would say it this way. There's no such thing as not being on mission with God as a believer. Like that, that they come together. This is the Savior part of Lord and Savior, like that's part of what you're signing up for. This isn't a get out of hell free card. Like Jesus, like absolutely, he did all the work for our salvation. There's nothing we could have done to earn it. There's nothing we could have done to ever deserve it. That was all on him. And we praise him for his grace. But he saved us for a purpose. He saved us for a reason. He saved us to join him in mission. And what he's saying is, is, is right up front, before he's even died for anybody, he's saying, no, 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 this is part of it. This, this, this isn't a disconnect. This isn't become a Christian and then kind of, I'll decide if I want to be. No, no, no. They go together. That's what you're signing up for. Being a believer is to be on mission with God. They're, they're the same. And so that everything we do is part of that. Do we get it right all the time? Absolutely not. Do we screw up often? Yes. But when we're believers, we are on mission with God. That's, that's what that we've taken him as our Lord and our Savior. Lord is a, is a kingdom word. It's saying, I'm in the kingdom. I have a king. I have a Lord who is now in charge. And he sends me out on mission. And I go. That's, to be a Christian is to be on mission. So when we commit our life to Jesus, it affects everything. It doesn't just affect our Sunday evenings. It doesn't just affect, you know, that one little chunk of time when we get together and listen to, to somebody talk. It affects the way you raise your kids. It affects the way you shop. It affects the way we vote. It affects our, our relationships. You don't get to not forgive anymore. That's not an option anymore. You don't get to live in unforgiveness because you're on mission and part of that mission is to forgive and to, and to reconcile, to, to, to be 
to reconcile broken relationships, to fix broken things, to be a, a part of redemption, to redeem brokenness. That's what we do. It affects the way you do your job. It affects the way you do your marriage. It affects the way you hand over a glass of water. Like it changes everything and it's supposed to change everything. You don't get Jesus without mission. So to walk with Jesus is to be sent. And to be sent into a foreign kingdom to subvert it with love. To subvert that kingdom with goodness and with kindness and with love. So how do we respond to this? My response is going to be short. But as we look back on the entire missional discourse, as we look back on the power that he promises in the beginning, the, the, almost the dire warning that sits in the middle, the new enemies, the new allies, the rewards he promises at the end. I pray that as we, as we take communion together, we might be willing to say, even so, Jesus, even so it is well with my soul. Like I am, I'm in. I'm in, I'm on mission. I want to be on mission with you. My desire, my heart's desire is not just to live my life, to live and die and never know why. But I pray that every breath you give me uh, would be a missional breath would be part of advancing and furthering the kingdom of God. That every, that, you know, a lot of preachers ask the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd, you know, they've ever heard that question. If you were to die on the way home, do you know for a fact you'd be in heaven? I prefer the question, if you don't die on the way home, what's tomorrow going to look like? If you don't die on the way home, is the world going to be better for it? Is the kingdom going to advance for it? I ask the question I prefer to wrestle with. What if I don't die? Can I bring more light tomorrow? Can I advance the kingdom further tomorrow? So my prayer is, is that as we respond, as we, as we sing, and as we take communion, we might say, yeah, I, that sounds like a rough road, but I'm in. It is well with my soul.